0: Hello and welcome to Anything But Catholic, the only truly traditional Catholic apologetics Q&A show. Today's episode brought to you by coffee. Don't even talk to me until I've had my coffee. (laughs) I am your host Christopher Lawrence. With me as always is the amazing apologist David Cook. David, how are you feeling? Pretty good. All right, great. So we're trying a bit of a new format going forward. We're going to have two Roughly thirty-minute episodes per week. The first segment of the week will be a discussion topic. We will do a bit of a deep dive into a topic regarding the church, and the second segment of the week will be our usual Q and A from listeners. So, this being the first segment, this will be our kind of deep dive into a topic of the church. This week's topic is the mass, specifically the true and traditional Latin mass. So, David. How do we get started with this one? What is the mass? Why should I care about it? What is the TLM? What is the difference? And where should we attend? Et cetera, et cetera.
1: Okay, so first of all, the the mass in general, it is a the sacrifice of Calvary, the one and only sacrifice being brought into the present. So the priest offers that one and only sacrifice to God the Father. Um I believe it was the fourth Lateran council that says that at the mass, the priest is both the, sorry, that Christ is both the priest and the sacrifice. Of course, the priest, like the parish priest or bishop, acts in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. And acting as Christ, he offers the bread and wine, which become the body and blood of Christ as a true sacrifice. And we see this throughout scripture that the, um, you know, the blood of bulls and goats and other animals didn't ultimately cleanse from sin, but that was pointing towards the true sacrifice of God's own son, son of God, as a sacrifice for sin. So that's why we should care about it. Um, as far as, were you asking me what the difference is
0: between the traditional mass and the new mass? Well, I think maybe we should get into that a little bit at some point in this discussion. I don't know if you want to begin with it.
1: Well, I will just say so here's the thing Catholics perceive worship as being the offering of a sacrifice. Now, I don't think the language issue is the main issue. I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all, but I don't think that's the biggest issue. Like, a lot of people will ask us, like, well, why can't we just have Mass in English? But the problem is the new Mass did a bunch of other things as well. They replaced the altar with a table, which was something that Cranmer did in the Anglican Church to try to make the Mass seem more uh, like pro—well, because he was getting away from the idea of the sacrifice of the Mass and moving towards a Protestant supper. All of the other reformers did the same thing: John Calvin, et cetera. And it takes—it's intentionally taking away from the idea that the Mass is a sacrifice being offered to God and makes it look more like a communal meal. So that's one problem with the Novus Ordo. Another one is that oftentimes the priest faces the people, which, again, it's making it more of a community gathering than the one sacrifice of the mass. Now, I, I will say, as far as where we should attend, I mean, I've said this before for a lot of reasons. I mean, I certainly think you should look for a Latin mass if you have one. Um, I go to the Society of St. Pius X Mass here, and I have no problem with publicly admitting that, but... Um, you know, and I generally would hold to most of their positions. I don't think they're perfect. I don't think any organization is perfect. But I would definitely say you're better off going to a Latin mass if you don't have that option or if for whatever reason you don't want to. I do think the Eastern Catholic, not Eastern Orthodox, but Eastern Catholic masses are also an acceptable option, The um, such as the Ukrainian Catholic or the Ruthenian Catholic and so on. One concern I would have about some of their parishes is that even though the liturgy itself is fine, sometimes the priests— can be more modernist, so keep that in mind. But certainly the worship itself is valid, and I think you could go there. I'm not going to say in public, and you can if you want to, but I'm not going to say in public what people should do if they only have a Novus Ordo available. I, I could tell you what I would do, but I can't really tell other people what to do. But I would at the least say I'm not comfortable with it, and that you're better off, if at all possible, making that sacrifice to travel to a TLM or an Eastern Catholic mass because of all of the Protestantizations that were added to the Novus Ordo. Um, Also, communion in the hand is allowed in the Novus Ordo, which I'm just uncomfortable being present where that's taking place because I think it's kind of inherently sacril almost inherently sacrilegious.
0: Yeah, the communion in the hand thing is a big problem because even on a practical level, like you say, this just inclines itself towards Christ. Well, we believe that's Christ in every Eucharist—body, blood, soul, and divinity. So it—it it, just—it just increases the instances of Christ being dropped on the floor, Christ being handled improperly, irreverently, pieces of Christ being trampled under people's feet. It's stuff that we, since we do fully believe that that's what it is, don't want to see happen. And obviously, with the communion on the tongue, it's nearly impossible for these things to occur.
1: I have a friend who is not Catholic. And he told me he went to a funeral today, and it was a Catholic funeral. Which certainly I would attend for a funeral. I mean, you know, I mean, this was allowed for non-Catholic services pre-Vatican II. So I mean, if for non-Catholic services, so much I, I would say certainly, certainly for a Novus Ordo Catholic service, I wouldn't criticize him for going or whatnot. But he was telling me that at this parish, they distributed communion to everyone, including people that they knew were Protestants. Oh uh, boy. And obviously it's not inherent in the rubrics, but I, I, I think that all this stuff put together, you know, handing out communion to everybody, communion in the hand, all of this stuff definitely orients itself away from a belief in the real presence. Not saying none of the people do believe in the real presence, but it seems to orient itself away from a belief in the real presence. Um, there's a Latin saying, lex orandi, lex credendi, how a man prays is how he believes. So I think when you look at the Latin Mass, I mean, we can go through it in detail, but when you see everything being treated very reverently, when you see the priest turning his face towards the east, towards God, lifting up the host as, like, in a a very reverent manner, doing all of these things in a very reverent manner, you really do get the impression that, okay, this is not normal life. This is not a communal meal. We're coming into the presence of God.
0: Right, you get that impression very strongly— in the tlm as opposed to the novus ordo also just another practical point the communion in the hand makes it far easier for someone who is a satanist or a devil worshiper or a witch to steal the eucharist now this is not some kind of sensationalist conspiracy theory i mean you can turn on the news these days and you just see more and more people publicly pronouncing that they're members of the satanic church or that they're wishes, witches even prominent celebrities trying to put curses on the president, among other people. So it's not some kind of far-fetched notion anymore. You can't really deny it. And part of the things that Satanists do is they steal the Holy Eucharist to use in their black mass services. Obviously, with communion on the tongue, not that it's impossible, but it's, it's close to impossible. With communion in the hand, the guy walks away from the priest, turns around, slips into his pocket, and there you go. And obviously, we would like to see that not happen. It shouldn't
1: be done. I I believe St. Basil said that it could, and I'm not saying that opinions of individual saints are infallible, but I believe he said that it could only be done during times of persecution. And the reason why would be sometimes, number one, sometimes if you're just in serious danger of persecution, it might not be possible for everyone to gather all together for mass. And number two, there is some kind of component of, if the church is dealing with persecution, there is some kind of understanding of, okay, number one, we're going to know who our people are. We're not just handing it out to everybody. And number two, the people who would be willing to risk persecution are also going to be a lot more reverent. But the idea of just doing this in a country like the United States where anybody can walk— By the way, they also used to dismiss the catechumens and anybody who wasn't Catholic. So, like, before they even offered the Eucharist, they would send those people out. So the idea—what we do today where just anybody can walk into a Catholic mass, the, you have no idea who they are. They can just take communion in their hand and do who knows what. Absolute sacrilege.
0: I like what St. Basil says. I also like uh, St. Oregano, who said, uh, pineapple does not belong on pizza. <laughs> David, do we want to talk a little...
1: pizza is probably a blasphemy, but I'm not going to hold anybody to that.
0: <laughs> okay. If you were Pope, though, you would excommunicate them. Of course. Um, <laughs> do we want to talk a little bit about what the priesthood is? Um, what makes it different from um, just a pastor in the Protestant church? Maybe a little bit about what the order of Melchizedek is what What things kind of separate a Catholic mass from just a like a quote religious service in another denomination?
1: Well, there's a lot to that. The um, the priest is a participant in the mediation of Christ. He stands in the place of Christ. He offers a sacrifice. He also absolves us from our sins john twenty twenty three. Jesus tells the apostles, whoever sins you forgive will be forgiven them. Whoever sins you do not forgive will not be forgiven them. And that we believe, and has always been believed, was passed down through the apostles, through the bishops, to the priests and bishops. So, if you've committed a serious sin, now we do believe that venial sins, like sins that don't don't damn the soul, are forgiven through attending the Mass or through praying the Lord's Prayer. But if you've committed a serious sin, and particularly with sins of purity, it's a fairly common problem, you have to confess that to a priest or bishop, usually a priest, in order for that to be absolved, normatively speaking. So our priests stand in the place of Christ and forgive us of our sins. They offer the sacrifice of the mass, the body and blood of Christ. They also have consecrated hands, which are, again, normatively speaking, fit for touching Christ's body, which ours are not. And, you know... How does this differ from a normal religious service? I mean, there's obviously a lot of different types of religious services. This show in particular being directed towards Protestantism. I would contrast the Catholic priesthood with like a Protestant pastor. A Protestant pastor's primary job, generally speaking, and there are differences among Protestants, but generally speaking, a Protestant pastor's main idea, so to speak, is to teach you what he thinks the Bible says. Now, there is a certain component that Catholic priests are teachers, but that's actually a secondary component of what they are. And one of the differences this makes is that I think if you go to a Latin Mass or an Eastern Catholic Mass, even if the priest is a raving liberal heretic, which is not ideal, but even if that's the case, 90% of your service is going to be the same because the service itself is liturgically fixed and it is oriented around the corporate worship of God in a pre-specified manner. By contrast, the a Protestant service you know, if, if the pastor is, you know, has a particular view of things, more than half the service is going to be affected by his views. So, again, the difference is, like, generally a Protestant pastor's primary role is to teach you, and a priest's prim- primary role is to participate in that sacerdotal mediator role.
0: Okay, very good. What's next?
1: So, the next major point in the Mass is the Confidior. Which, um, in the confidier, and the reason why we so basically, this is a prayer to um Christ and the saints, um, basically admitting that we are sinners, and it is, uh, it's basically admitting that we're sinners, and none of us, including the priest, are worthy to be in the presence of God, but in humble adoration, we give thanks and express deep sorrows for our shortcomings, and we. As Christians know, there's not a strict differentiation between this world and the next world. Um, We know the saints in heaven and the souls in purgatory are united with us. We've talked about that on this show before. And we're in communion with them, so we ask for their prayers for us because we know we've sinned. We know that we need God's grace, and we ask these saints, including John the Baptist, Mary Most Holy, and St. Joseph, to pray for us.
0: Okay, and then what happens after that?
1: Next is the introit, which is a psalm that introduces the mass for that particular day, um, depending on where we are in the liturgical calendar. Um, the introit has its roots in the psalms that were sung by the choirs as the procession of priests and clergy would enter the church. And the priest reads that introit and concludes with saying, glory be to the Father and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, amen, in Latin. And then he moves to the middle of the altar. Then we have the um, Kyrie eleison, which is Greek for Lord have mercy. Incidentally, this is the only section of the mass that is actually in Greek. Um, so it's kind of a fun fact. Um, and the it, it's a prayer for redemption, and it dates back very early to Byzantine Greek masses. And in the Western church, it's been used for 16 centuries, at least since Pope St. Gregory the Great. So why do we do this? Well, we pray this, the way this is prayed, it's prayed Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison. Christe eleison, Christe eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, and there's th- that that is that three sets of three, which symbolizes the unity of the Holy Trinity. We're calling upon all three persons of the Trinity when we pray this.
0: And we just want to say that probably mentioned that Kyrie eleison means Lord have mercy on us, and Christe eleison, as you might suspect, means Christ have mercy on us. Yes. Okay. And this then... also
1: comes from the. Um, this is also reflective of the prayer of the humble tax collector, which was, um, "Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner."
0: Um, and then I, next is the Gloria, right?
1: Yes, um, the Gloria incidentally is just is it omitted during penitential seasons and masses for the dead, which kind of makes sense because it's more of a celebratory hymn. Um, which, but this means glory to God in the highest. And this this originates from the Song of the Angels the night Jesus was born,
0: okay. And then we move into the readings for the day, right? right after yes. Yes,
1: yeah, so the priest reads from an epistle, which is usually taken from one of St. Paul's um, um and then the the gospel is read while people are standing. um, the gospel being from one of the four um, you know, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the um, – I don't think many Protestants will ask us, well, why would you read Scripture during the Mass? But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean that's usually one of the few things that they keep. But, uh, yeah.
0: Right. And then after the reading of the Epistle and the Gospel – Well,
1: usually, usually at that point the priest will preach a homily, which is the approximately 15 minutes or so in which the priest himself – would actually make any kind of a difference, um, but you know, I mean, we do this for the same reason, effectively, that Protestants preach sermons. It's just not as central to our understanding of the faith, but nonetheless, people do need to be taught. And while people oftentimes go to catechism classes or things like that in order to be taught, we do have some teaching during the mass itself as well.
0: And that can take a lot of different forms, uh, depending on the priest. There are some that are strict to the idea of simply doing something like speaking on the life of that particular day's saint, whoever's feast it is. Some are strict on the idea of simply explaining the readings of the day, the epistle and the gospel. Some will also additionally comment on a uh, teaching of the church, usually through the eyes of the day's gospel reflected in that somehow, et cetera, et cetera. But that, that, as you said, David, that's the one thing that kind of varies priest to priest.
1: Yes. So then we go to the credo, um, which is Latin for creed or no, actually it's Latin for I believe. Mm -hmm. But essentially, I mean, this is um, I'll read it really quick just so people are aware of what it says. I'm going to read it in English. It's it's said in Latin, but I'm going to read it in English so people know, you know, what it says. I mean, here we're teaching. We're not celebrating a mass. But um, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation descended from heaven. He was incarnate by the Holy Ghost under the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures and descended into heaven. And sits on the right hand of the Father, and the same shall come again with glory to judge living and the dead, of whose kingdom there shall be no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life-giver, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. And I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the remission of sins, and I await the resurrection of the dead and the life of the coming age. Amen. Now, a lot of Protestants already recite this. There are a few comments I want to make on it, and then if you have any additional comments, you can certainly make them. But number one, I think a lot of Protestants, especially Protestants who don't recite this, are often a little bit clumsy on how you can have three persons and yet only one God. So, they'll make comments that are kind of um, a little bit heterodox. Like, for instance, they'll make a comparison between, like, well, the Trinity is like water vapor and water and ice. And it's kind of like, well, okay, that's not three persons. That's three forms of the same thing. It's actually a, mo- a heresy called modalism. That's
0: modalism, Patrick.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, I-, I-, I don't want to uh, anger my co host by recommending Lutheran satire on here, but they are <laughs> funny, <laughs> They're funny yeah. and often right. Not always. Definitely not always. But, um, you know, (laughs) so, um, but, um, we, we understand that the son was begotten, not made. Um, he is eternally generated from the father. Um, so the father is in and of himself, God, and the son has his divinity from the father, the Holy Spirit from the father and the son. And, um, you know, that they are three different persons, but they all they all are in perfect union from each other with each other. And I think that, that it's obviously a mystery that we can't fully wrap our minds around, but it's something that the church has passed down to us. It's something that's clearly taught in scripture and we have to accept it without any doubt. Um, couple other points that I'll comment on that are less um, thought of. um. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We could break down all the ways in which Protestants really don't have this, but it's just very, so what is this? Well, it's one in faith and one in government, right? That's what oneness is. Holy Mm -hmm. refers to the worship of the church. It doesn't refer to the people, obviously, because people are sinners, but the worship of the church is holy. Catholic, I've seen some debate over whether Catholic really means universal, but even if it did, it would still be universal in terms of uh, global global existence and also universal in terms of having the same faith, right? So a lot of Protestants will say, like, well, we're really Catholics because we exist. And it's kind of like, well, if that was the case, so would the semi-Aryans that were being condemned by this creed. And apostolic, meaning the doctrines have been passed down from the apostles through the bishops until the present day. This is one institution. This is not just anybody who believes in some arbitrary, essential set of doctrines. And also, I confess one baptism for the remission of sins. A lot of Protestants violate this line in the Creed because they'll say things like, well, there's water baptism and there's Holy Spirit baptism, which is a different thing. But all of the 4th century fathers and even the 2nd century fathers would have clearly understood that these are the same thing, and they certainly would have had that in mind when they wrote this. Even the Lutheran pastor, Jordan Cooper, like, ultimately had to leave Presbyterianism for this reason because it was so clear that, you know, this is saying water baptism saves people. I don't know if you have any other
0: comments to make, but— Yeah, I would just say that generally, um, as I think you touched on, a a great deal of the creed is—its effect is to— Correct a lot of heresies that were faced in the early church, uh, which we don't need to get in into all of them but there, there was arianism gnosticism Marcionism, docetism The macedonian heresy I mean there's there are aspects of this creed that combat each one of those heresies and are useful therefore to the faithful to understand Just what the church Teaches preaches and believes. Um, the only other thing I want to mention is that in the coming weeks I'm not sure exactly when But I believe we will do an episode Devoted to explaining the nature of the Holy Trinity, at least as much as is humanly possible, uh, as far as what the Catholic Church teaches. Um, And that's it. Okay, so then the next part of the Mass, David, um, we're up to the Offertory, is that right?
1: Yes. So the priest reads the prayer, which makes an offering of the unconsecrated bread and wine, and asks the Lord to accept our offering, despite our unworthiness. Now, here's why... This is important because grace builds on nature, right? So we start with the bread and the wine. And God intervenes through the priest to make that into the body and blood of Christ, which is supernatural. Now, there are a number of scriptural points for this. Number one, the Old Testament sacrifices of lambs. We talked about that before, which points to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. If you look at 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 19, the symbolism that Paul uses to argue assumes that Jews, Christians, and pagans all have a sacrificial altar. Um, there are Old Testament prophecies in the book of Isaiah of God making priests out, and Levites out of some of the um, Gentiles. Not everybody, some of them. So th- there's more to this than just the priesthood of all believers. And we've talked about that before. And one thing I will say the natural law points to the idea that true worship of God involves the offering of sacrifice. This is the case in every religion, not just in Christianity. So. I, I think the, the lone exception is Protestantism, and I think it's kind of a novel idea that they take, which is to say, you know, yes, every man understands that worship involves sacrifice, but for whatever reason, we don't think—well, because they misinterpret Hebrews, but nonetheless, we don't think that's a thing anymore. But grace builds on nature. It doesn't destroy it. So there is this understanding, even in natural law, that has been known by all humans throughout history. To truly worship God, we offer him a sacrifice.
0: And there's also the the objection— that uh, some have that we're attempting to re-sacrifice Christ, but it's not a re-sacrifice, it's a re-presentation of the one eternal sacrifice.
1: Right, Christ only died once. He doesn't die when we offer a Mass, but, the, but Calvary is brought to where we are and is offered up as our worship.
0: Right, and as you, as you <laughs> try to explain to uh, Matt, it's like, God exists outside of time. Therefore, it's not necessary for us to re-sacrifice Christ. As you just said, the sacrifice of Calvary, the one eternal sacrifice, is represented and brought to us each time the priest offers the holy sacrifice of the Mass. All right, David, what's next? Next is the
1: canon, and that translates in Greek to measuring stick. I guess that's in Greek, too. Um, but... Um, It starts with three remembrances. First, we ask God to accept and bless our gifts through his son, Jesus Christ. Um, For the living, we pray for protection and peace in his church. And third, we offer up to God those who are offering the mass, including all those present, the angels and saints and our blessed mother. And the priest prays this while holding his hands over the chalice with his thumbs overlapped in a cross, um, representing the sins of the world that Christ took upon himself. In times before the new and everlasting covenant, uh, this was also done over the sacrificial lambs, and the priest silently says this prayer for the also for the pope and the local bishop.
0: And this is an aspect of Mass that, in particular, has really not been altered in any way since its apostolic origin, um, and has really not been changed at all since uh, at least as early as Gregory the Great um, in five five forty five fifty A.D. Um. This has been done the way it is still done.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Um, and we can see that there, there we have very early missiles. And maybe we want to say what the missile is too, uh, which is kind of the, you know, I mean, not to use such kind of vulgar language, the kind of guidebook <laughs> or yeah, handbook. Yeah, the
1: missile is just the book that tells you what's being said, so you can kind of follow along.
0: Right. That's that's exactly what it is. We have some very. The church has some very very early missiles, which show. The exact same things being done that are done today. All right. What is the next part?
1: The, at this point, the priest consecrates the host, which he uh, takes – which follows what Jesus did on the night he was betrayed. He takes bread and blesses it and says, this is my body. And, li- and the reason the priest lifts the host in the air at that point is because it's now the body of Christ. Christ is actually present in the mass. He must be worshipped. And then the priest does the same thing with the wine. Now, I think a lot of Protestants take their view of the Lord the Lord's Supper, like we talked talked about previously, from taking too much from the literal idea of, like, the Passover, and not enough from what Jesus says and the way Paul describes what Jesus said in 1 Corinthians 10. Um, so that would be one difference there. But we believe that the bread and wine actually are changed into the body and blood of Christ, and therefore they must be worshipped.
0: Right. Um, one of the few... Binding rubrics in the Latin Mass on the Laity is that all must be kneeling, rightfully so, for the consecration of the host, which we believe does become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, meaning that Jesus Christ himself, the God man, is present at the Mass in that instant. Okay, David, what's next?
1: Then there is the Noster, the Our Father, which is the prayer of the faith Christ taught his apostles to pray when they asked him how. And the priest follows that up with a prayer for our deliverance and protection. And this is just, you know, the Lord taught us to pray this way. Um, It also shows that we are children of God coming into the presence of God. And after, and we are preparing ourselves as praying this, you you know, saying we are God's children. And we are asking him for, you know, our daily bread, which I believe the, um, Church Fathers generally actually believe it was a reference to the Eucharist, not just to ordinary
0: food. I believe that's right, yes. Um, and in general, it's just saying that we, we know that we have nothing and can do nothing without God, without God the Father, and without the intercession to Him of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just reminding everyone of that in every Mass. Okay, and then what's next?
1: Then there is the Angus Day. Agnus Dei, which is the Lamb. And again, we talked about this before, like actual lambs used to be used as sacrificial offerings. And now God has given us his only son, the Lamb of God, as our sacrifice. So once again, we are are recognizing that Christ is the fulfillment of those Old Testament things. He is the Lamb of God. And the priest, once again, beseeches the Lamb of God to have mercy on us before we are communed.
0: And the imagery of the Lamb is throughout the whole of Scripture obviously it's it's a literal lamb as you just said in the Old Testament and then Christ becomes the unblemished spotless sacrificial lamb in the Gospels and then the imagery is taken up to represent Christ in apocalypse or revelation um, where in particular apocalypse 512 says the lamb that was slain is worthy to and divinity and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and benediction Amen, David? Amen. All right. What is next? So at that
1: point, the priest does actually commune people, and we commune kneeling and on the tongue out of reverence for the body of Christ, like we talked about previously. And the priest communes us by, while saying, um, Corpus Domini Nostri Jesu Christi custodiat animam tuam in vitam aternum, which means may the body of our Lord Jesus Christ keep your soul unto life everlasting.
0: I just want to back up a slight bit. If you don't mind um and mention uh the domine non sum dignus which is first the priest says and then the congregation say which is in latin is lord i am not worthy that you enter under my roof but only say the word and my soul will be healed which is of course taken from matthew the centurion who approached jesus christ asking for the healing of his servant jesus responds that he will come and heal him and the centurion says uh, Lord, I am not worthy that that will enter under my roof But I also have men who are subject to me I tell them to go when they go and I'm paraphrasing a little and to come and they come and to do this and they do it If you only say the word I know that my servant shall be healed and Jesus is So impressed by this faith that he heals the man's servant From where he is the man the centurion goes home to find that his servant has indeed been healed So we take that part for all of us in the mass to ask the Lord to heal our souls, so that we may be worthy to receive Him. Amen. Okay, David, go ahead. What's next?
1: So then, after that, we um, the priest returns to the altar and receives the bread. Receives the wine in the chalice, and he um, he says, "In I mean, this would be the English translation into a pure heart, O Lord, may we receive the heavenly food just past our lips, bestowed." Upon us in time, may it be the healing of our souls for eternity. He then goes to the epistle, and the server pours wine and water onto his fingers, and he says, May thy body, O Lord, which I have received, and thy blood, which I have drunk, cleave to mine inmost parts. And do thou grant that no stain of sin remain in me, whom pure pure and holy mysteries have refreshed, who livest and reignest, world without end. Amen. At that point, the... um, the priest kisses the, the altar and blesses us, saying, May Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost bless you. And then after that, the last gospel is read.
0: So I'm going to read from, there's a fantastic book, which you can still find. If I can find somewhere that's actually selling it, I will put the link in the description of the podcast. It's called Treasure and Tradition, The Ultimate Guide to the Latin Mass. It's a thin book, but it is absolutely packed with everything that you would want to know about what goes on with the Catholic Mass and why, and it says this about the last gospel, the reading of the last gospel. So, so the custom of the reading of the last gospel at the end of Mass originated in the Middle Ages. The faithful would sometimes ask the priest to read a gospel over them as a form of blessing, because the gospel is the word of God himself, think we all believe that. The beginning of John's gospel was a natural favorite, being a poetic summation of our creation and salvation, all brought about by God's immense love for us. It reminds us once more that the true light, which enlighteneth every man, is now living inside us. Over time, it became customary for the priest to begin reciting at the altar at the end of Mass and to continue from memory as he processed out of the sanctuary. This eventually extended to reading the entire Gospel at the altar, and in 1570, Pope Pius V officially added it as part of the Mass. So there we go. Amen. Amen. It does kind of sum up uh, in a very poetic and beautiful way, as was John's want, the nature of creation and salvation, Um, and and therefore is a summation of what takes place at the Mass itself. So it's fitting that it is read after the Mass. David, at at this point, can you talk a little bit about the difference? What is a low Mass and what is a high Mass? We do have two different forms of the Mass that are said in the uh, traditional Latin Mass, the Tridentine Mass. What are those? Yeah, so
1: essentially the Low Mass is a... um, The priest says the words, like, by himself. um, Whereas the High Mass is chanted, usually with a choir. So it's different between a Mass that is sung and a Mass that is just recited.
0: Right, and in the Low Mass... Ah, uh, the norm of the low mass. It is the altar servers, the altar boys, who stand in for the lady. Uh, it's solely the altar servers, and then in the high mass, they're also joined, uh, as you said, by the choir, who also speak the whole of the mass and the responses for all those present. the 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 congregation in the Tridentine mass, normally speaking, does not and should not. Say the responses aloud. There are some exceptions to things that we do say aloud in the Latin Mass, but generally speaking, we have the altar boys that stand in for us um, to do those things. It's it's our job to follow and pray along, and to be attentive, but not necessarily to vocally respond. All right, David. And then and then one other difference between the low Mass and the high Mass is that I'm, after the low Mass, there are additional prayers that are said. Can you talk a little bit about what those prayers are and why they're why they're said?
1: Yes, so first we pray three Hail Marys. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Now, we've talked about this prayer before. We've talked about its biblical basis. Um, The Hail Mary is kind of one of the two major parts of the backbone of a Catholic's prayer life, the other one being the Our Father. So I think it's very fitting that we pray this um, corporately. The um, Salve Regina, Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To Thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To Thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping, in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us. And after this, our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of Thy womb, Jesus, O Clement, O Loving, O sweet Virgin Mary. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Now, this is a prayer that, uh, a lot of Protestants would struggle with. But I think, again, when you look at, when we talked about, like previously, the um, Mary as the new Eve, um, and all of the typology that goes into that that we talked about last time, I think this is a very fitting prayer. And I'm not going to fully get into all of it now, but, um, you know, we've established previously that Mary really is our advocate. She really does have a very central role. And so, again, we pray this corporately. Um... For Mother Mary's protection to be on us because we know we need her intercession.
0: Right. The addition of these prayers, they're commonly kind of blanketed under the term the Leonine prayers, um, being attributed to Leo the Thirteenth. But they began before that. Uh, Pius the Ninth actually added in a time of persecution, he requested that well, he didn't request, he was the Pope. <laughs> he said that <laughs> one hour one hour, Father and one Hail Mary, he said after the after the masses for the restoration of the papal states and to the occupation that was occurring at the time. Later, Leo XIII added the Salve Regina, the Hail Holy Queen, and composed and added the Prayer to St. Michael that you mentioned. And later on, um, Pius X added an invocation and appeal to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And this is one thing that is particularly fitting now that unfortunately some priests leave out, is that it was originally for the intention of conversion of the, quote, godless communists. If there was ever a time in history since the first time that this was invoked that we need an appeal to convert the godless communists, I mean, that time is now. Amen. All right, David, what, what, what else do we want to say to, to finish off our, our brief overview of the Mass? Obviously, the topic of the Mass is something that we will return to, I'm sure, quite frequently. This is, This is just a brief overview of the different parts of the Tridentine Mass, commonly referred to as the traditional Latin Mass. How would you like to sum up and finish up this description, David?
1: So I think if this is your first time hearing this, it's, you're not going to remember every part. And that's okay. I'm still learning it myself. But I think the important thing is that you understand a couple key things. Number one, I would absolutely say you've got to understand what's going on with the consecration. You know, this is the body and blood of Christ being offered to God the Father. Like That is central. That's our act of worship. If there's one thing you take away, I think it would be that. The second thing that I would say, if you're going to take away a second thing, is the centrality of eating and drinking in salvation. The, um, Adam and Eve damned humanity by eating the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. We receive life through partaking of the body and blood of Christ. Um, Jesus, like I've talked about previously, you know, we weren't supposed to eat the blood of animals because the life of the animals in the blood. That's exactly why we do partake of the blood of Jesus, because the life of Christ is in his blood. Which, generally, in a Latin mass, you receive the, um, the bread alone, only the priest receives the wine, but we have an understanding that Christ cannot be divided. So receiving under either form is sufficient. The entire Christ is contained under either form. So certainly if you see people just receiving the uh, bread, don't worry about that. That is normal in the Latin Mass, and the fullness of Christ is being received in that way. Um thirdly, I I would say, you know, it's going to take time to learn what the Latin translations mean. But I would probably say, you know, if it's your first time, especially at a high mass, take in the beauty of it. Understand these are the most beautiful um, chants and hymns that can be offered up in worship of Almighty God to surround the offering of that Eucharist. And then, you know, you try to learn it point by point. You're not going to know it all the first time. But that would be a sense, but understand what's taking place in general, even if you can't follow every single point.
0: That's right. I'm glad you made that point about the two different species, the bread and the wine. The only things I would add is very briefly, I'd like to say one um, a note on the language, the Latin language. Some people see this as as a, a barricade or stumbling stone, stumbling block to beginning to participate in the Latin Mass. The reason that the church uses Latin. Is that it is? It's twofold. One, and I think I've mentioned this before, it is a dead language, which means it can't be changed. So modern active languages such as English, the meaning of words are often fluid. Um, what their intonations are, what what they imply, can often change. Whereas the Latin, being a dead language, does not change. The, what the words meant 2,000 years ago, they still mean today. So there's no mucking around with the worship. The second reason that the church uses the Latin is that Latin is one of the languages which was written on the sign which was placed above Christ's head on the cross. So it was part of the cross on which Christ shed his blood and thus has been sanctified as a language in that way. The only other thing I like to say is some people also have a problem with the Latin mass, the priest facing away from the people, all the congregation facing the same direction. They, They think it feels impersonal or they're... Um, broken apart from the priest, he's not engaging with them that's true because we understand that the worship is going to God, it's not about us it's only about us in the extent that we are there to participate with the priest who is offering our sacrifice as a mediator in persona Christi to God the Father, we all face the same direction with the priest who is facing God and offering the sacrifice on our behalf So it's not really an interplay between us and the people, which is more like a show. It is the Holy Sacrifice of Mass. It is the re-presentation of Christ's eternal sacrifice. Please continue sending in your questions. You can do so by emailing to sequavertus at protonmail.com. That's S-I-Q-U-A-V-I-R-T-U-S. And protonmail is p r o t o n. M-A-I-L dot com. You can also submit questions in our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash anything but Catholic. And that is all one word, anything but Catholic, where you can receive updates, submit questions, participate in our online discussions about the week's episodes, etc. cetera. David, as always, I'd like you to mention the upcoming debate that you have.
1: Yes. So we're 99% sure the format is going to be on Zoom. So you will be able to go on Zoom to watch it and we'll certainly release the Zoom key and all of that. But um I'm debating a Protestant apologist named John Wesley Bush the Third on the topic of Sola Scriptura on Sunday, December 13th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So um I think that's gonna be a really good debate. I think it's gonna be a bit different and a bit more nuanced than the previous debate with Pastor Bruce Bennett. So definitely check it out um, whether you have seen the other debate or not. Um, I think it's gonna be really good. I think it's gonna be really helpful for any Protestants who might be wrestling with those kinds of issues. And also, um, if you do want to help support us financially to help us put out more great content, um, there will be a Patreon linked in the um, description of the episode as well.
0: Right. And as always, please visit s i q u a v i r t u s. S-I-Q-U-A-V-I-R-T-U-S.com, where you can find the full range of our content, which is this podcast as well as two other podcast shows. We have submissions from readers of artwork, literature, essays, music, etc., all done by talented Catholics, and the links to our Patreon, as David mentioned, and also to our merchandise shop, where you can get some Catholic clothes and merchandise that you might actually want to wear. David Cook, thank you very much for that great explanation of the Mass, and we will speak again in the very near future to take our listener questions.
1: Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye, everybody.